Okay. Okay. So good evening, everybody. Hello, hello. Some of you I know. Many of you I do not know. Um, Chess, I feel like I'm really loud. Am I really loud? No? Okay, fine. So first of all, I want to start by just saying thank you to all of you um, for being here, um, not just because I'm teaching tonight, but because I want to affirm the fact that you are sitting in this room weekly and you have made a commitment and a decision to study the Word of God and to understand better how the Old Testament begins with a story that takes us all the way through the New Testament to the book of Revelation. You will be, I hope, glad every week when you leave here at the pieces and the way things begin to come together so that you see the fuller picture of God's story throughout the scripture. Now, before we really get going tonight, we're going to talk about the fall, which is, you know, if you did your homework, really lighthearted topic tonight. Um, but um, let me introduce myself because there are a lot of you in here and who don't know me, and I'm not very tall, so you probably already figured that out. But I apologize to those of you who are further back in the room. I, you probably can see me from about my nose up, but I've got heels on, and this is as good as I can make it for you, okay? <laughs> so anyway, um, my name is Christine McDermott. Um, this is my family. And so my husband, Jeff, and I have attended Church of Charlotte and now New City for the last 27 years. We're oldies but goodies around here. And we have four children. We have one of those families that has like two shifts of children in it. When Jeff and I married, um, he had two daughters who were 9 and 11 at that time. And so we have two older daughters. The younger of the two is in this um, picture on the right in the blue. Um, that's Jenny. She and her husband, Scott, who's beside her, live in Ohio. And the two really young people in the picture are their twin children, Lauren and Logan, our grandchildren, who are sophomores in college this year. Hard to believe. And then our older daughter lives in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and she was not present for this photograph. Then the other two guys in this picture are our nef next shift of children. These are our two sons, Michael and Benjamin. They are both um, single, live here in Charlotte, um, and are enjoying good jobs and life in general as young single adults. So this is, this is our gang. And then up there in the left corner is um, the third um, being that lives in our house right now. And that is Tilly, our one-year-old golden doodle, who is trying very hard to become an adult, but she has some days that are not as successful as others. And so anyway, so that's my story. So now what we want to take just a minute to do is um, you are now sitting tonight at the tables where you're going to be um, for the rest of the term. And um, so I know you did some introductions last week, but now that you're actually with your people for the rest of Old Testament. Uh, we want to give you just a minute to get to know each other just a little bit. You may have some people at your table that you already introduced yourself to. That's okay. 
you'll just learn each other's names and faces and information with a little more um, repetition. So here's what I want you to do for about the next five to ten minutes. This won't take you long. So tell everybody your name. Tell them who lives in your house beside you. And then think of three words that describe you. Not sentences, okay? Not paragraphs. Three words that you can say. He, and, and we're going to admit up front this is not an exhaustive list. There may be 32 other words that also describe you really well, but pick three, okay? So I'm going to let you get started with that. Okay, let's come back together. Does everybody know a little bit of something about everybody else sitting at their table? That's our hope. You're going to know a lot more as the weeks go by. So tonight what we want to talk about is um, the story behind the story. And as you all know, one of the things that we are set out to accomplish in this class, this Old Testament class of New City Academy, is we are set out to determine how all the stories that we will study, all of the events in the Old Testament, how do they fit into the redemptive story that ends and culminates in the Lord Jesus Christ coming to earth. <clears throat> So we're going to talk um, tonight about story, and we're going to have as our theme that God redeems from the very beginning. So we're going to see that clearly tonight as we go on. Now, I brought someone with me tonight. This is a doll. No, it's not Barbie. Who said that? This is a doll that I received at the age of six from a grandmother who I idolized. And when you look at this doll right now, what you see is a doll dressed in her little wedding dress. You know, it's all lacy and beautiful. It's not quite as beautiful as it used to be. And you don't, you probably would look at this doll, especially those of you in the room who are males, and you would think, yeah, huh, whatever, right? <laughs> you can be removed. Okay. So the reason I brought this doll with me is that she is a little bit of a story when you just look at her. She's obviously dressed for a wedding. Her eyes move up and down, side to side. She has a very pretty little face. Her hair's not in very good shape anymore because she's quite old. But here's the story that you don't see when you look at this doll. The story that you don't see is of a relationship between a little five- and six-year-old girl and a grandmother who loved her very much. And when I look at that doll, what I see is scenes from my childhood. Because this particular grandmother lived in a home that every year at Christmas was just decorated in the most beautiful fashion. Remember those lights that used to be on Christmas trees? There were those glass bubble lights, and they would get really hot, but the liquid would bubble. Her tree was covered in those lights. And I can remember standing in front of that tree and just thinking it was the most beautiful thing I had ever seen. 
She was the grandmother who every time we arrived at her house, there were fresh cookies waiting in the kitchen. She was the one who would drive an hour to come over and pick my mom and I up, except she didn't drive. So she would come in a cab, and she would pick us up in a cab and take us another hour from Akron, Ohio to Cleveland, Ohio to take us shopping in the best stores in the city. She was the grandma who, whenever you entered the room and came through the door at her house, you knew she was waiting for you. She was anticipating your arrival. And so I just idolized this grandmother. She was even shorter than I am, if you can imagine that. But she was a wonderful person. But here's the other scene that I see when I look at that doll. Two years later, not too much before my seventh birthday, that grandma died. And my little life changed because someone who had loved me so much was no longer present in my life. And this is pretty much the only thing I have that remains from that grandma. I can remember opening that doll on a Christmas morning, and when I took her out of the box, I thought she was the most beautiful thing I had ever seen. And when I turned her over, every time you tipped her, she cried. I thought she was magical. And I attributed all of these wonderful things and all of that love and care to this little four foot ten grandmother who was already always ready to receive me. Now, I tell you that story today because in my mind that plays out like a movie. It plays out like scenes that I can reflect on as a little girl and remember that particular relationship in my life. Tonight, I want to ask you to do something similar to that in your minds for the next few minutes. I want to ask you to think about the scenes that we're going to talk about for the first few minutes here tonight that are happening in the Garden of Eden. And I want you to think of them like scenes you would watch on a movie screen. So I want you to vividly picture in your mind what the garden looks like and what is really going on at this moment in time. So I'm actually going to ask you right now to close your eyes for just a moment. And here's what I want you to see in your mind's eye. I want you to see this beautiful lush green environment with all kinds of trees and shrubs and vegetation, flowers. It's blooming everywhere. There's more than enough food growing on plants and trees. There are vegetables that are coming up out of the soil. It's more than they need to eat. All of the animals in this garden are living together in peace. The little ones, the big ones, they're all side by side. There's no conflict. The water that runs through this garden is blue and clean and peaceful and restful. The sun is bright and warm in the sky during the day, and the moon shines brightly at night. Everything in this garden grows easily. There's no toil. There's no argument. Everything and the people in this garden, the two people in this garden, 
are living in complete peace together. There is no strife. You can open your eyes now. Now, that is a picture of the way that God intended it to be. That is a picture of the abundant life which God created for Adam and Eve when he put them in that garden. But what happened, well, before I say that, let me say this. I want you to remember this word. Even more than abundant life, what was present in the garden at that point in time was shalom. Shalom in the fullest sense of that word, which means complete peace, complete ease, no strife. It was peace the way God intended it to be. And Adam and Eve in this garden, they have complete dominion over everything, plants, animals, all of it. And they have complete cooperation with each other and with the animals. It is such a picture of the freedom that God intended for them. And those of us that have had teenagers know the idea of looking for complete cooperation and good freedom as opposed to some other kinds. But then what happens? Think for a moment about what you prepared for this week. How many of you were able to do some or all of your pre-work? Okay, great. So what happens is they're in this beautiful place where shalom is reigning. But what happens? They meet this serpent. And where is he? He is in the very spot that they probably aren't really thinking about very much because it's the only boundary God's given them. They're not worried about it. They have everything they need. But here comes this serpent, and he draws them right over to the place where God has said, don't go there. And he's not just any old snake. He is the enemy of God. This is the one who right from the first moment uses the greatest weapons that he could to deceive, to create counterfeits, to put doubt and fear in the minds of men and women. So the first thing that he says to Adam and Eve as you all know from your readings, is, did God really say that you shouldn't eat from the trees in the garden? Did you notice that, that he includes all the trees? As if to say, you know, God's not giving you what you need here. He told you don't eat from any of these things. And Eve corrects him and says, no, that's not what he said. He said we could only not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so the serpent continues. And what his real message is at this moment in time is not just about the fruit on this tree. It is all about creating a question in Adam and Eve's mind about whether they really need God. Does he really have your best interest in heart? Would he really have told you that if he loved you as much as he claims to love you? 
did he really give you freedom in this garden over all these things and to enjoy all these things? Or is he withholding from you? You see, what Satan is doing at this moment in time is he is shining the spotlight on the one thing that is a boundary for Adam and Eve. And when he does that to them, or when he does that to us in our lives, what happens is he heightens our awareness and our attention on that very thing that we know is not good for us. The focus becomes what I can't have, what I cannot do. And if I can't have it and I can't do it, well then, is God really thinking kindly of me? Does he really have my best interests at heart? Rather than them celebrating over all that has been made for them and this perfect place in which they are dwelling, now they are focused in the midst of all of this abundance, all of this shalom, they are focused on the one thing they can't have. And as soon as Eve takes that fruit and eats, and Adam takes that fruit and eats, everything that can be broken around them is broken. Now, when it's broken, what happens with Adam and Eve? You all know this. What do they do? They hide. Why do they hide? Because they're naked. And it's the first moment that they've even realized that. They didn't know they were naked before that moment. And God comes into the garden, and what does he say? Where are you? And they don't really want to tell him. And we're going to pause here for just a minute to make a very important point about this story. As we reflect on the fullness of what was in the Garden of Eden, the fullness of what Adam and Eve possessed, what we learn from other places in Scripture as the story goes on is that these mere human beings, God had everything in their best interest in mind from the very first. In Psalm, the eighth chapter, verses four through six, here are those verses. What are mere mortals that you should think about them, human beings that you should care for them? Yet you made them only a little lower than God and crowned them with glory and honor. You gave them charge of everything. You made everything you made, putting all things under their authority, the flocks and the herds and all the wild animals, the birds in the sky, the fish in the sea, and everything that swims the ocean's currents. O Lord, our Lord, your majestic name fills the earth. What a description of what God had in mind. And similar to this, in Hebrews, the second chapter, it quotes that psalm, what are mere mortals that you should think about them, or a son of man that you should care for him, yet for a little while you made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You gave them authority over all things. Now, when it says all things, it means nothing is left out. 
but we have not yet seen all things put under their authority. And we're going to talk about why that is. What we do see is Jesus, who for a little while was given a position a little lower than the angels. And because he suffered death for us, he is now crowned with glory and honor. Yes, by God's grace, Jesus tasted death for everyone. Now, here's why I'm introducing those thoughts to you right at this moment in time. We have never seen what God fully had in mind for man. We've never seen everything under man's authority. We have never experienced shalom as it could have existed before sin entered the garden. But there is one man, the God-man, Jesus Christ, who fulfilled what is described in these passages. So the way that we are able to see it is to know the kind of life that Jesus lived, the abundant life that he promised, the way that he conducted himself and interacted with other people while he was on the earth. He is the one who came, had everything under his authority, suffered death for us, and is now crowned with honor and glory. He is the perfect man. Now, we're going to start our first discussion time right now. And what I want you to do is to think about two things. The first one is, what were Adam and Eve like before the fall? I want you to give a little, you know, we don't know exactly how much time passed in that garden before that serpent showed up. We have a tendency to read those passages, I think, and and think, well, two days went by and there he was. Well, probably it was a much longer period of time than that. And Adam and Eve had had experience enjoying all that God had provided for them. So think a little bit in your groups and describe what you think Knowing that Adam and Eve were living in that shalom, in that abundance, what were they like before they met that serpent? Their characters, personalities, relationships, and how did they understand God? And then work as a team around your table, and using the narrative of the fall, come up with an explanation of the gospel that you might give to someone who does not know about Jesus. Okay? There you go. Okay, let's come back together. I want to hear some of what your thoughts were. So starting with the first question about what you thought Adam and Eve were like, before the fall, their character, their personality, etc. What are some of the thoughts that you had? Just call them out. Uninhibited. Okay. Trusting. I'm sorry. Innocent, content. Like children. Inquisitive. Relational. These are great words. Relaxed. Isn't that a happy thought? Relaxed. Anybody else? 
carefree. Mm -hmm. Vegetarians. I think you're right about that. Others? I'm sorry? Childless? At that point, that's correct. Purposed? Mm -hmm. Naive? Were they naive? What, the, what about the last part of this? What do you think their understanding of God was at that point in time? What did you say about that? Okay, we have a confession up here. They forgot to talk about it. You all are excused for the moment. Okay, what did some of the rest of you say about that? What are, or even if you didn't discuss that, what are some things that you thought they would have understood about God at that time? He was good. He took care of them. Relational. You, ha you got to say it so I can hear it. Close? Yes, close to them. Right. Creator? Mm-hmm. Friend? Mm-hmm. Anybody else? Sorry? A giver. That's good. Okay. I think... Do you think they knew to be jealous before they met the serpent? No. No, but my seed had to be there. The seed. Okay. Well, no, I'd, it, well, it's not dumb, for starters. <laughs> okay, I think the way we have to answer that question is to think about the way God has created them at this moment in time, and in whose image are they created? God's, and God does not know sin. He does not experience a sinful form of jealousy. He does not, um, he would not have passed on to them those feelings of, well, why don't I have that? Why can't I get that from that tree? Probably more of a capacity for curiosity. Yes, I think that's a good way to say it. Okay. That's right. That is correct. Yes. It took the serpent to plant the thought. Took the serpent. Okay, what about the second one here? Using the narrative of the fall, did you come up in your groups with a way that you would share the gospel with someone? So we need some brave volunteers here from um, a few of the groups to, to say 
what were the ideas that your group generated? Okay, I don't know if everybody could hear Mary Jo. Okay, she said that it would be very hard to just start with that, but that the best way to tell someone about Jesus is through your own story because that can't be refuted because it's your experience. What else did you say? Some of the other tables. Somebody else? Okay, good. Two good ones. There's another one here. I think you're probably right about that. I don't know if all of you could hear him, but his point was that we need relationship with the person ahead of time. We need something that triggers the conversation in order for it to make sense that we would be addressing that with them. Yeah. Anybody else? Very good. Thanks for sharing that. That could be the summary of the New City Academy classes right now. Okay, so we know uh, we're going to go back to the story now. And what we said just before we started those table discussions is that Adam and Eve were hiding. God is looking for them. And what does he say? Where are you? That is exactly what he says. And He's still asking that question. He continued to ask it over all the years that passed after Adam and Eve. He still asks it today. 
Because what is every man and woman's inclination when they know they've sinned? What do we do? We hide. And we hope he doesn't know, even though he knows everything. But we still have that variable going on inside us that we're hoping somehow we can escape. So let's finish the story. So after the garden, when they are thrown out of the garden, first of all, they have closed themselves in fig leaves. And God in his grace does something very loving and kind for them. Because probably those fig, that fig leaf arrangement wasn't working out real well. So he kills animals and gives them animal skins to clothe them. And a lot of Old Testament scholars view that that moment in time was the first example we have of an animal sacrifice being part of God's plan. So he clothes them enough, and then he sends them out of the garden. And what happens after they're out of the garden is things go very poorly. They begin their family, the family system that should have been peaceful and calm and loving is very disrupted. It should have been a beautiful thing, but as it unravels, one of their sons kills the other. And as families grow from those sons that are the descendants of Adam and Eve, communities grow, and overall what we see in Scripture is that men are just inherently wicked. that sin has taken over their lives, and they are sinful generations. And so in Genesis, the sixth chapter, which you read for tonight, in the fifth verse, it says, the Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on the earth and saw that everything they thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. Now, that's a very sad state of affairs. However, there's one thing that I want us to remember. God was preserving a line even during this time of incredible wickedness. Because right after we read that in the fifth verse of chapter 6, what do we find out immediately after that? That there is a man, who is he? Noah, and his family in whom God finds favor. This is a family that still believes that God is creator, that he is overall. And so he puts Noah in a unique position to build this incredible ark. How many of you have visited the ark that's in Kentucky? Has anybody been there? Okay, I'm wanting to go. I understand it's quite an incredible place. Anyway, so Noah builds this ark. And he spends a very long time in what was probably a very stinky, loud, crowded, hot boat. And finally, it lands on dry land, and the sun comes out, and the water begins to dry up, and Noah is able to leave the ark with the animals. Now, let me ask you a question. What is that story really about? Is it really about a boat floating on the water? Or is there another story behind that story? It is about God's provision. 
And so what we see right here is Noah has essentially gone through a symbolic death. That's what's happened in Noah's life. The flood has taken everything away. The earth is cleansed. Yet he and his family have been preserved. The waters of judgment that came from God did not overwhelm them. They are carried into a new world and a new life by, don't miss this word, by a redeeming God. He is redeeming from the very beginning. So what does this remind you of? When I say that to you, that Noah has passed through a symbolic death, that the waters have cleansed everything away, and there is new life now for Noah and his family that can begin, what does that make you think of? Baptism. What else? Resurrection. Jesus' blood, cleansing, renewal within us. So when we read things in the New Testament that reference things like the old has passed away, but the new has come, we are really, we can reflect at that moment all the way back to the sixth chapter of Genesis. Even then, God was showing the plan of what was coming, what the renewal and the freshness, dying to sin, rising to life was going to look like for those who would follow in the next generations. Now, before we do our next table assignment, I want to be sure that there's two things that are behind the story that we're talking about tonight that I want to make sure we don't miss, and it's related to where we are right now with Noah. From Adam, God preserved a lineage down through Noah, and then among Noah's offspring, there were sons that died and sons that lived, but one of those sons by the name of Shem is the one that God chooses to follow this genealogy through, and Shem will become the predecessor of Abraham. Abraham will become one of the great, great, great grandchildren of Shem. So even at this moment in time, when we see families developing, we see some of the sons who are obedient, others who are not, God is still putting things in order. He has not left the plan that he's had from the very beginning. So the second thing then that I want you to see in addition to that lineage is I want you to think seriously for a moment about the covenant that God makes with Noah when the flood is gone, the waters have cleared. And what does he say to Noah when Noah comes out of the boat? I will never destroy the earth with a flood again. So he's promising through his grace that even though man will continue to sin, God's promise is, I will never destroy mankind again. And here's something very important to note about the covenants of God. They only 
depend on him. There's nothing in that covenant that says, well, now if you do this, I promise I won't destroy men again. No. What he says is, this is a flat-out promise. I will never again destroy mankind from the earth. And he shows a sign to emphasize this. And we know that the sign is a rainbow. Thank you. And so he seals this covenant with this lovely scene. You know, this makes the best children's story in the whole world, doesn't it? You know, the animals come off the ark, the sun comes out, and there's this beautiful, beautiful rainbow up in the sky. The word, the Hebrew word that means bow in rainbow is the very same word that means bow in bow and arrow. And so, actually, what God is showing us right here is a very interesting picture of a bow in this shape. And the curve of that bow is facing heavenward. And so, if an arrow were to be placed in that bow, the dangerous end of that arrow would be pointing where? Straight up to God. It is one more picture for us that if trouble is going to come again, when men sin and they need redemption, God is the one who is going to absorb the pain and the turmoil. He will not destroy men again. He will make a way for them to be saved and redeemed. It is one more sign of his covenant. It is a symbol of the gospel of Jesus Christ, of the role that Jesus will play in the future to absorb all the trouble and the turmoil that men and women will create, and he will take it all on him when he goes to the cross. Now, here are your questions for your second discussion time. What are some of the lasting implications of Adam and Eve's fall into sin? And how do they affect you personally? Be willing to admit tonight, how do they affect you personally? And then secondly, compare these two positions. Because of the fall, how are we as mankind now unlike God? And after we are redeemed in Christ, how are we like God? Go ahead, get started. Okay, let's come back together. So what did you identify as some of the lasting implications of Adam's and Eve's fall into sin. Every problem I've ever had. <laughs> well, that's one way to summarize it. Separation. Separation. Good word. And they taught us how to shift blame. Yes, they did. They taught us how to shift blame. What are some of the other... La yeah, it's not me. It was her, right? And then it wasn't me. It was the snake. Yeah. The importance of choice. Mm-hmm. Those are really good words, too. Longing and wondering, what would it have been like? 
others? Yes, all of the above, huh? Right. Death, sickness. Mm -hmm. Very true. So how do those things affect you personally or me personally, any of us? Fear. Fear. We are a fearful people, aren't we? Mm -hmm. Stressed. Mm -hmm. Anxious. Suffering. Losing loved ones. Mm, The feeling of never being good enough. Do you feel the emotion and the turmoil inside you when we say these phrases and these words? Very real. Anybody else? Doubtful. That's true. We don't completely know, do we? We Okay. Anybody else want to share anything? All right. What about our second question? What comparative points did you come up with? between how we are unlike God because of the fall, but how we become like him after we are redeemed in Christ. How are we unlike him as a result of sin entering the world? Okay, that's a very good point. Thank you. We want to make ourselves in his image, not our own. And you said everything we just named, which is pretty much true. Mm. Other things, how are we unlike him? I'm sorry? We die. Impatient. Mm -hmm. Selfish. Okay, that's a good point. We are not forgiving. Mm Mm-hmm. broken and empty. Once again, these words are emotive, hard to take in. Now, on the other side of that, which is where we want to head next, after redemption in Christ, how are we more like God? Okay, more selfless in our relationships. Mm-hmm. Yes, sinless till we sin again. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's a biggie. The spirit lives within us, if you didn't hear what Brian said. The fruits of the spirit, that's exactly right, grow and are demonstrated in us. Mm-hmm. Humble, is that what I heard? Okay. Mm-hmm. 
Is Jesus was humble. Okay, that that's a whole nother conversation. <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna save that for another day. Did I hear another comment in the back? Well, could you say that again, please? Yes. And we have the capacity as a redeemed person to act more like Christ, to have more of his attitude, his love. In that way, that was what I meant by the question, we do become more like God because he is the reflection of God himself. Adopting the characteristics, yes. Okay, so let's go on now and let's talk for just a moment about the lasting implications of um, the fall and sin entering the world. The first one is that we all have identity in Adam. And we've identified that just in the last few minutes through our discussion. We all experience the effects of the fall. His story, Adam and Eve's story, is essentially our story. It's the human story. How we fell from a fuller likeness of God. And we experience all of the ins and outs, characteristics, of that today, just like they did. And it's interesting to note that the word Adam in Hebrew is the word for man. And when God uses that word throughout the Old Testament as he is referring to man, he is referring to both men and women. There is no separation in most places when it talks about men falling, men being evil. It is, in fact, referring to both genders. But our identity with Adam leaves us in a certain condition, and the condition that it leaves us in is right here. We're going to switch over a little bit now to some scriptures from the New Testament that show us how this carries forward in the redemptive story. First of all, from Romans 3.23, we've all sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. And in Romans 5.12, it specifically says when Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. None of us are exempt. That sin has distorted each of us as human beings, and that applies intellectually, morally, relationally. Ecclesiastes 7.29 says this, God created people to be virtuous. 
but they have each turned to follow their own downward path. We understand the full meaning of the image of God, not by observing other humans. We understand it only one way, and that is by the biblical description of Adam and Eve's nature when they were first created, and God declared that creation to be very good. And then secondly, we understand it through Jesus Christ. Oops. So what goes on in our lives as we are redeemed through God's overall plan is that we begin, we begin to have a progressive recovering of God's image. And here's what I mean by that. Jesus is the lasting image of the human likeness as God created it to be and as God intended. And it says in Colossians 3.10, put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your creator and become like him. We are renewed. We have a new nature when we come to know Jesus Christ. And what does it say in that verse? We know our creator as a result of that, and we become more like him. And then in 2 Corinthians 3.18, we should all be so thankful for Paul as he wrote all of this to make all of this story so clear to us. All of us who have had that veil removed can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. And the Lord who is the Spirit makes us more and more like him as we are changed into his glorious image. Those words right there assure us that as believers, God has restored for us what we lost in the garden. That he is in a process in our lives of returning to us some of that purity of heart and mind, that knowledge of him that was lost through that temptation and sin. He is in the business of renewal and restoration. Now, for your last discussion tonight, we're going to finish up with this. Um, we're about to wrap this up, and we're, we're rounding third and heading home. So your last discussion tonight is something that I just view as so important in our understanding of Adam and the role that Adam played in the garden, but what is represented through Adam and his sin, and then what is represented through Jesus Christ as he replaces Adam. So I want you in this last discussion time to look at these two passages right here that I have listed for you. And then I want to ask you to compare the effects of Adam's actions and Jesus' actions and confirm around your tables how is it that Jesus provides the solution for the problem that came through Adam. Okay? Go for it. Okay, let's come back together. Let's answer the first part of the question. 
What are some of the comparative things that you came up with between Adam's actions and Jesus' actions? Call them out. Direct opposites. Death and life. That's it. I know there's a lot of good brains in this room. What else did you say? Sin and redemption. Mm -hmm. Separation and reconciliation. Good descriptors. Oh, I like that. The front and back cover of a book. Oh, that's good. Two different actions, one of taking, one of giving. Okay. Mm-hmm. I don't know if everybody could, okay, if everybody could hear that one man's action wounded the world and the second man's action saved the world. Mm-hmm. Yes. 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 Selfish versus selfless. Yes. Disobedience versus obedience. Mm-hmm. Good descriptors. So how does Jesus provide the solution for the sin and death that Adam's actions brought. Died on the cross for us. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, could you say that louder? Yes, fulfilled the punishment for sin with his work on the cross. Yes, really good point. He was the ultimate sacrifice, the one and only sacrifice that was needed. Yes, very good. Yes, solution for death so that we will be able to live eternally. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's just wrap all of this up with a couple final comments. We experience both the first Adam and the second Adams. I hope that that was clear to you as you read those two passages. But the second Adam, the Jesus that has redeemed each one of us as believers, is the reason for us to celebrate because through faith in him, we can once again know our creator and conform to his image. I want you to leave here tonight knowing this, Satan and the actions of the serpent in the garden, God's enemy, Satan is not equal to God in any way. God was the victor in the garden. He is the victor in the sacrifice of Christ 
and his resurrection from the dead. He is the victor when each one of us as believers are changed from old creatures to new creatures. Death has no victory. And he will be the ultimate victor when all of his children are raised to life and Jesus returns again. Satan holds no candle to the power and the authority of God. And finally, although we share Adam's sinful nature, here's the really good news. When we believe in Jesus Christ, he declares us righteous. So the awesome thing is that everything that we lost through Adam in that garden, God redeems and builds back into us, not because we do anything to deserve that, but because it is simply his grace and his promise to us that the one who knew no sin would take on our sin so that we who knew no righteousness would literally wear the righteousness of God. That's how he sees us. He has positionally placed each of us into Christ Jesus. His life and righteousness transferred to us. So let me just give you one final thought tonight. This is for your journals. If you'll write this down. Oops, where am I here? Okay. We got to go back to the... Okay. There are two things for you to reflect on, and you can write these in your journal at an, and do this at another time. Can you just go back to the slideshow, Tammy, so it'll come up on the full screen? Mm -mm. Up in the... Uh, there we go. Okay. So here's the first one. Knowing, And these are on the um, question sheet that's on your table if you want to write these down. Um, knowing that you are redeemed to live in the image of God, how does that influence your perception of yourself and the way you interact with others? That's a very important question. Someone earlier said that one of our biggest struggles as the result of sin is that we never think we're good enough. And the truth of the matter is that that is not the way God wants us to perceive ourselves. So spend some time thinking about now that you are redeemed through the love of God and the blood of Jesus Christ, how do you perceive yourself differently? And then second of all, just take a few minutes to praise God and thank him for the fact that he has redeemed you from the curse of sin. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. All right, so um, I'm going to pray for us before we go. But before I do that, let me just remind those of you who are table leaders to be sure to take attendance with um, the app. And if you do not know exactly how to do that, Tammy Metters will be happy to instruct you. But let me pray for us before we go. Father, we, um, we are awed by your majesty and your glory, by the power by which you spoke the world into being. And Father, we, um, we can only imagine um, what it was like to live in that garden before sin entered the world. But although we can't imagine that, Lord, we do know now the reality of what it means to be the redeemed children of God. 
and we thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross who came and bore my sins and the sins of each individual in this room, Lord, to redeem us and to clothe us with his righteousness. We praise you for that. We thank you for that ultimate of sacrifices. And Lord, I ask now that what we have learned here tonight, that your spirit will remind us of these things, that we will leave this place feeling as though we know and understand you a little better than we did when we walked in. And so, Father, we just look forward with anticipation to studying for next week and the next time we're together. And um, Lord, we just ask you through the powerful and mighty name of Jesus to protect us, to restore our lives and remind us of the truth of your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.